In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, for the next 10 weeks or so, we're going to be doing a series on the Apostles' Creed, which we titled, I or We Believe. So this morning, uh, lower your expectations, it'll be a little boring. <laughs> it's an introduction, little lecturish. You know, I, I've got that little academic thing in me. So tolerate it and smile and tell me how wonderful it was after we're done. <laughs> Historically, we know that the creeds began to emerge during the second century of the church's sort of formation. In order to help the church form its direction and boundary for belief as they were sorting things out. The first generation of believers in Christ knew that there was a new covenant that was afoot, um, a new arrangement between human beings and God as a result of this idea of incarnation where God becomes human in Jesus Christ. They knew of it. They knew it changed all the rules. But that new covenant needed definition. What was it about? What changed between the new and the old covenant that was revealed through the Jewish prophets? What were the Christians to believe? How should the church measure the opinions that various people were putting forward and that were emerging about the new covenant? The church needed what came to be known as a canon. The Greek word canon, K-A-N-O-N, which we spell in English C-A-N-O-N, uh, first appears in the New Testament in Paul's letters, it was used to refer to the guidelines that were established by God, like the outside of a jigsaw puzzle where you could tell what fit in and what fit out or didn't fit in. Galatians 6 says it, peace and mercy, Paul writes, to all those who follow this rule, that's the word canon, even to the Israel of God. It was also used to point to the boundaries of Christian ministry. Again, this is Paul, 2 Corinthians 10, 13. We, Paul writes, however, it will not boast beyond proper limits. Again, the word canon. But will confine our boasting to the field God has assigned to us, a field that reaches even to you. The canon was the means of measure. Like how we use an inch, you know, to sort of measure distance. The canon was the measure used to determine truth and actions that were appropriate to the Christian life. The Latin phrase, and I know you love Latin phrases, the Latin phrase used to describe the canon was the norma normans non normata. The norma normans non normata. What it means is, this is just about as clear, the norming norm that is itself not normed. What does that mean? It means that it's the standard that everything is measured by, but is not itself measured by anything. It is the measuring. Again, like the inch, you measure things by the inch, and you adjust accordingly, but the inch itself is not under scrutiny. It's not being measured to be adjusted. It is the inch. You measure by it. An inch is an inch. It is the norm of norms that is itself not normed. It is the norma normas non normata. Praise the Lord, this is exciting. <laughs> I know you want to know this. So a canon was necessary to set the boundaries for the Christian church and was thereby authoritative for issues of belief, issues of practice, 
life, worship, liturgy, all these sorts of things. The canon was thought of as the rule of faith, the Latin regula fide, right? Which was right belief in the church. In the early historical development of the concept of the canon, there were at least four different but related places where the canon was rooted. In other words, the place by which we said, what's the inch? How do we measure? What is that inch? The first place, initially the Christian canon, the inch was simply Jesus. He was the inch. (laughs) Hebrews 7 says it claimed that Jesus had the power of an indestructible life. And so the new believers in Jesus focus on Jesus. He was their canon. He was their norma normans non normata. He was their inch. He was the measure, the boundary they searched for. What would Jesus do? That little bracelet that came out in the 80s, I think. What would Jesus do became what Christians should do. It was how they measured what they did. They said, what did Jesus do? They simply imitated Jesus as their regular fide, as their rule of faith. For the Christian, the beginning and the end of the world's order and the beginning and the end of healing for the world is found in the life, death, and resurrection of the person, Jesus Christ. Even today, as we approach sacred text, the Bible, we should do so with these rose-colored glasses, right? By which I mean we to read sacred text as a whole, that we must realize it has to be consistent with what we understand is revealed in Jesus Christ. And when we read about things that don't consistently fit with that, all we can say is, well, it doesn't fit with that. What does it mean? Well, we don't exactly know what it means, but it certainly doesn't fit with that. So for instance, when you see these orders being given to kill all the children and all the people of a particular group in the Old Testament, we look at that through the eyes of Jesus and say, something else was going there than really the perfect will of God, right? We're halted in some ways because Jesus becomes the glasses by which we look at both the Old and the New Testaments. The Old is looking forward to Christ and speaks in pieces. The New Testament is looking back, the epistles look back to Jesus and what he has said, but it's the gospel that tells us the words and the life of Jesus and the church loved the gospels. That's one of the reasons why they would stand when it was read all through history. The church has always been the Jesus people. (laughs) Consequently, those first few centuries had an intense interest in Jesus and the backstory of his life, which yielded a flurry of writings that many of them we still have extant. In other words, we have the copies uh, that were translated by the original authors that have come down to modern history. There are a bunch of others that we don't have the actual copies, but we have the, 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 they're referenced by other writings and quoted by other writings that we know of. And, and all of these writings, you can find them if you're interested. Uh, there's a website called earlychristianwritings.com and there are dozens and dozens of these writings. It, were those, it was that corpus of writings that I did my master's in, which kind of surrounds the New Testament writings. There are, there are writings like the infancy gospels of James and Thomas that talk about what happened when Jesus was in Egypt and what he was doing and how he lived. It talks about that kind of stuff. People were just interested. They didn't think they were true. They just loved thinking about it. 
right? Then there's the famous Protevangelium of James. This is a rather fantastical kind of account uh, where we meet Mary's parents and we see how she supernaturally is fed by angels as a child living in the temple. And we see the miracle of the conception that she has. We, we find out in that little writing when Mary is found to be pregnant and the priests of the temple both accuse her and Joseph of impropriety and they force them to, uh, to take poison as judgment. But they both survive, which tells the priests of the temple that there was a miracle going on. <laughs> we witness in that particular uh, writing the supernatural birth of Jesus. He doesn't come through the birth canal. He just sort of comes out <laughs> in the story. You go, okay. Uh, and at the very moment, at that very moment when Jesus appears in, in, the, in, in uh, the hands of the midwife, uh, at that very moment, Jesus is in Bethlehem and he experiences a catalepsy of creation. A catalepsy means like a freeze frame of creation. Let me read this to you. It's an interesting little quote. It says, and Joseph, this is from the Protoevangelium of James, and Joseph found a cave there and brought Mary into it and set his sons by her. And he went forth and sought for a midwife of the Hebrews in the country of Bethlehem. Now I, Joseph, was walking, and I walked not. And I looked up to the air and saw the air in amazement. And I looked up unto the pole of the heaven, and I saw it standing still. And the fowls of the heaven were without motion. And I looked upon the earth, and I saw a dish set, and workmen lying by it, and their hands were in the dish, but they were, and they were chewing, uh, but they were not chewing, and they were lifting the food lifted up, but it did not lift, and they put, they that put it into their mouths put it therein, but their faces of all of them were looking upward. And behold, there were sheep being driven, but they were not moving forward, but standing still. And the shepherd lifted up his hand to smite them with his staff, but his hand remained up. And I looked at the stream of the river, and I saw the mouths of the kids upon the water, and they drank not. And Upon all, this, all these things, suddenly they began to move on their course. So in other words, what happens is, as Jesus appears in the hands of this midwife, all of creation freezes. <laughs> the birds freeze, the people freeze, and Joseph's looking all over saying, it's all frozen. Something's going on. That's the Protevangelium of James. Man, the church, they knew that this wasn't really based in uh, you know legitimate account of what had happened. But, but they still loved it. Because it served to address the whole underlying questions that would have been lurking in the minds of these early people, these early Christians, when they heard the gospel story. Is this story truly a God event? Was Mary really a virgin? Why would she, of all the virgins in Israel, be chosen to be the mother to the Son of God? All these questions would dwell there. My point here is that in the early Christian church's story, Jesus himself was the point. He was the canon. They were interested in him. The second stage of the canon was the Jewish sacred text. The church began to say, okay, we're thinking about Jesus, but where else is he seen? And they began to turn to the prophets of the Jewish text, which were called eventually the Old Testament. It isn't called the Old Testament until late second century. So it's just referred to the Jewish prophets, right? And Jesus, they were motivated. They were looking in. Their interest in the Jewish writings were not, it was not what you would expect. They weren't just looking for ethical teaching. They were looking, they were motivated by the belief that Jesus was tucked away in the teachings of the Old Testament. That Jesus was hidden there. So they start to search the Old Testament looking where to find Jesus. 
they get this idea from Jesus himself. In John 5, Jesus is preaching or talking talking to the leaders of his day, the Jewish leaders. And he says to them, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them, the scriptures, you possess eternal life. These, Jesus says, are the scriptures that testify about me. So they begin to dig in there to find out where. Where are these scriptures testifying about Jesus in these rather hidden or opaque ways. And then in Luke 24, after the resurrection, Jesus is walking on the same day of the resurrection. Jesus is walking with two disciples. And he said to them, "You, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter to glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So you see what he's doing? He's saying, you just need to go back. You need to dig around in there and start looking for where I'm present, even though I'm not obviously present. This is the dawning of the metaphorical reading of scriptures. This is a Where's Waldo campaign. Do you remember that? Right? It's like, that's the whole Old Testament. Those are all the prophets. Waldo's in there. So the whole game is to keep looking for Waldo. you got to look and look and look till you find him. That's exactly what they were doing. They were saying, Jesus is in the Old Testament. Where is he? And this was the search for Jesus in the midst of the history of the Jews. This is how the Jewish writings gained prominence in the, in the minds of the early Christians. And you see that by the fact the New Testament writers constantly quote from it. We see texts like Matthew 26. By this, Jesus says, has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. In other words, what he was doing was just simply expressing what had been foretold. In Acts, the people of Jerusalem, Acts 13, the scripture says, the people of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Again, what is he saying? The Old Testament, these sacred texts are talking about Jesus. O Roberts had a famous sermon entitled The Fourth Man, where he goes through every book of the Bible and shows how Jesus is there. And he'd start, when he did this, he'd do it, you know, in his inimitable uh, preaching style. You know, he'd be preaching away, and then he'd say this from memory, or something like, in Genesis, he is the promised seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is the high priest. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. In Numbers, he is the star to rise out of Jacob. In Deuteronomy, he is the two laws, love God and love your neighbor. In Joshua, he's the captain of the Lord of hosts. In Judges, he is the covenant angel named Wonderful. In Ruth, he is the kinsman redeemer. In Samuel, he is the one greater than the temple. In Kings and Chronicles, he is the king's son. In Ezra and Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder. In Esther, he's the savior of God's people. In Job, he is the daysman. In Psalm, he is the song. In Proverbs, he is the wisdom of God. In Ecclesiastes, he is the one among a thousand songs of Solomon. He is the bridegroom of the bride. In Isaiah, he is Jacob's branch. In Jeremiah, he is our righteousness. In Lamentations, he is the unbeliever's judgment. In Ezekiel, he is the true shepherd. In Daniel, he is the stone that became the head of the corner. In Hosea, he is the latter rain. In Joel, he is God's dwelling in Zion. In Amos, he is the raiser of David's tabernacle. In Obadiah, he is the deliverer of Mount Zion. In Jonah, he is our salvation. In Micah, he is the Lord of kings. In Nahum, he is the stronghold in the time of trouble. In Habakkuk, he is our joy and confidence. In Zephaniah, he is our mighty Lord. In Haggai, he is the desire of the nations. See, they would just preach it. In other words, Jesus was everywhere. 
So Roberts is really echoing the earliest Christians' connection to the Old Testament. They were looking for Jesus. And the church dug and dug like gold prospectors into those ancient texts scattered through the Old Testament. They were looking for the, the way that they illuminated the person and purpose of Jesus Christ. Now, sidebar, they did this to the point of fantasy, right? So you have these texts, one of them, the Epistle of Barnabas. It was at one time included in the canon and would have been in your New Testament. They eventually took it out because it lost use. Uh, I don't know if you know that, but the text changed for some time. They didn't land on a final list of what the New Testament would have and the Old Testament text that we would have. They didn't come up with a final list until 367. That's almost 400 years after Jesus rose from the dead. It took the church a while to kind of land on what they believed was sacred, right? So. Barnabas was included for a while. <laughs> listen, let me read you a little piece of it. It's strange, but listen to it. Now wherefore did Moses say, You shall not eat the swine, nor the eagle, nor the hawk, nor the raven, nor any fish which is not possessed of scales. He had three doctrines in his mind by saying this. How do you know that? They know this, right? Moreover, the Lord said to them in Deuteronomy, And I will establish my ordinances among this people. Is there not then a command of God that they should not eat these things? There is. But Moses spoke with a spiritual reference. What's he saying? It, you're reading it, but there's something spiritual. See, they're looking for other kind of ways. Metaphorically, the text has been said. For this reason, he named the swine. As much as you say, you shall not join yourself to people who resemble swine. For when they live in pleasure, they forget their Lord. But when they have need, they acknowledge their Lord, which is like the swine, who when it is eaten does not recognize its master, but only looks for the master when it's hungry. So what's he saying? He's saying, yeah, Moses said don't eat pork. But that's not what he meant. What he meant is this. See, they were making everything spiritual, right? Neither shall you eat, says Moses, the eagle or the hawk or the kite or the raven. Thou shalt not join yourself, is what he means, to such people who know not how to procure food for themselves by labor and sweat, but seize on those of labors of others because they're lazy. Okay. <laughs> You shall not eat the hyena. By this he means you shall not be an adulterer, nor a corrupter, nor be anything like that. For why not the hyena? Because that animal annually changes its sex. And it is at one time a male and then another time a female. Okay? Right? And on and on and on and on this text goes. And then it finally ends with, We then, the Christian, rightly understand the commandments, explaining them as the Lord intended. For this purpose he circumcised our ears and our hearts that we might understand these things. So here's the point is that the, these early Christian writers loved the Old Testament. They loved it first to find Jesus, and then they tried to start building issues of, of morality, issues of ethics, issues of practice from those texts, but they weren't taking them literally. They were using them in metaphorical ways which opened up a whole world of craziness. Okay? <laughs> which is why there's a third stage of canonical development. And that third stage was the putting forth of the Apostles' Creed. They were trying to put a finer point on the issue of belief. In the second century, Irenaeus, who's a famous, famous uh, early church father, claimed that the regula fide of the church, the, the rule of faith of the church, the canon was the uh, Apostles' um, Creed. 
How do we know what to believe or what is true? We have Jesus, yes. We have the Where's Waldo campaign going on, yes, in the Jewish text, but there, that's such a huge landscape. We need more of a snapshot of what we're to believe, a sort of an elevator speech of what we're to believe, something quicker. We need a creed to live by, and so out comes the creed. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, etc., etc. After the creed, which we'll come back to because that's what this series is about, we're going to dig into that. The fourth stage of canonical development, the final stage, is the emergence of the importance of the New Testament, the writings, explicitly Christian texts. Again, this doesn't really happen. I mean, they were present, but they didn't really respect them or quote them in the way that they became until late second century. They're mostly talking about Jesus and mostly talking about uh, the Old Testament and that sort of thing. It's finally that the writings themselves begin to be appealed to in the late second century. People say, Paul said, and the gospel says, and they started appealing to those written texts, late second century. It's important to note that, that we cannot, and we can't deal with this this morning, but all those sacred texts, the Old and the New Testament texts that they began to say, this is our basis, this is the new inch, this is the Norma Normans non normata, this is our canon, they never interpreted those things privately. People didn't have copies of the Bible on their phones, nor did they have books. After actually, the first time all of those writings are put into a single book isn't until under a guy named Cassidorius in the 6th century. They were all individual writings that had scrolls or pamphlets. They were put together. They weren't all put together in one book like we know it now. People didn't experience it that way. They, the, the, all of the sacred writings were heard in the community and they were interpreted by the community, not by individuals. Very different than what happens in the Reformation, right? Uh, the first, but, so let me just shift to this, I've got to end this. When we say the creed, week in and week out, we're declaring what was preceded, what really preceded the emphasis on what came to be known as the New Testament. And the very books that become part of the New Testament, the only reason they did is because they passed the muster of the creed. So when they're making the decision, do we leave the shepherd of Hermas in the New Testament in the 4th century? Do we leave it in? What, the reason they don't leave it in is because it didn't pass the muster of the creed. Right? So these, the creed actually becomes the filter by which even the texts that end up in the scripture become part of our scripture. The Apostles' Creed is critical to our story as a people. The Apostles' Creed was first used as a baptismal vow like a wedding vow. You've been to weddings or been married and you hear them say, asking preliminary questions, do you take so-and-so to be your lawfully wedded wife or husband to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness or in health and to love and to cherish till death do you part? You set it up. You, will you willing to do this? The answer, I do. Then turn to her, turn to him and make this vow. And then vows are made. In the ancient ceremony of baptism. Those being baptized or their guardians, those that were guardians of those being baptized, would be asked a few preliminary questions. Questions like, do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? I renounce them. Do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your savior? I do. And after they go through those preliminary questions, then the vow is made. Listen to the vow. 
Do you believe in God the Father? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe in God the Holy Spirit? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. The vow was the Apostles' Creed. When we say it week in and week out, some of us pray through breviaries, like the breviaries of a prayer book, like the Book of Common Prayer, the BCP. And some of us do it twice a day. We say that, that uh, creed twice a day. We're remembering our baptism. That's what that is. We're remembering the vow of baptism. We're, we're, we're remembering our marriage to Christ and to his church. That's why we say it. When a person comes to Christ, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 12, for we were all baptized by one spirit into the body. Baptized by the spirit into the body. The church has historically believed that this baptism by the spirit into the body happened in the moment of water baptism. Literal water baptism. That that's when it happened. Luther took the stand that the most important vow made by the believer was the one made at water baptism. The baptismal vow is a promise to believe in Christ, to hope for eternal life in him, and is a promise to live one's life in accord with the ordinary norms of good conduct. As in a marriage vow, you promise yourself to one other person being baptized into the body of Christ means Christians are pledged completely to Christ, which means that they are given themselves lock, stock, and barrel to Jesus and his church. Declaring that Jesus is Lord, that means that we belong to him, period. That's what that vow is about. If you watch the liturgy closely that we use week in and week out in the church, it often refers to our baptism or references in some way our baptism, things like the sign of the cross, does are in there's churches that have water at the entrance of the church. When you walk into the sanctuary, they have water. The reason the water is there and people put their fingers and often will do the sign of the cross in various traditional churches is because they're remembering the water, they're remembering their vow, their baptismal vow. I love that. These things are saying, remember your vow. That's what we're doing. So over time. The I believe in God became the declaration in the service as we believe in God. The implications of moving from I to we are huge. We'll pick up on that next time. I hope you'll be able to be with us for this whole series. I think it'll enrich the moment when you're standing and we're saying together, we believe. But let's first be still and silent as we stand and before we say this creed together. And let's just allow the Spirit to continue the work within us.